We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study on the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Holy Ghost is witness to the fact that Christ perfects all His people by one offering on the cross. That occurred when the Spirit disclosed the new covenant for God's people in Jeremiah's day. According to that new covenant, God promised that one day He would perfect His people Himself. Christ's sacrifice takes away all remembrance of the sin of His people, just as the Holy Ghost and Christ had promised. And where sins are forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, there can be no more offering for sin. The sin offering cannot be repeated because it is finished. The consequence for us is astounding. Being made perfect by Christ's sacrifice and having our high priest in the holiest place where He has sprinkled His own blood for our sins, we are commanded to enter with boldness unto that holy place before our God. We are commanded to enter with true hearts of full assurance, being made pure by Christ and to hold fast the profession of our faith because God is faithful to keep His promises. However, sadly, plenty of people in this world defy the living God in these matters. Whenever they offer up their own good works like Cain did, or whenever their religion appoints fallen men as so-called priests, or other rituals and masses as propitiatory sacrifices, they are trampling upon the blood of Jesus, usurping His priesthood and overthrowing His offering. The Jews did this after Christ arose, their ironic priests kept right on offering animal sacrifices, which Christ had abolished already. But soon God cut off their animal sacrifices completely. He used the Roman tyrants to destroy their temple and stop their sacrifices in 70 A.D. But some people are still hard at work trying to restart those sacrifices in these days. There is an entire movement of Jews today plotting to recommence offering animal sacrifices at the original temple site in Old Jerusalem. One such zealot was arrested just last week, caught with a goat, walking towards the Dome of the Rock, intending to sacrifice the animal to reclaim the temple site from the Muslims. The tragedy is that the people in Christ's day were screaming that He be crucified. The only one who could save them from sin and death and hell the only perfect sacrifice, how they despised Him so. They rejected the promised King of Peace, the King of Righteousness, the High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and chose Caesar instead, their tyrannical brutalizer. One day soon, the Romans would destroy their preferred animal sacrifices, which could never save them, on the cross, when He had paid all the price for the saving of His people, Christ cried out, It is finished. He surrendered up His life in our place at Calvary. From that point on, there has been no other sacrifice for sin and no other priest but Jesus. All other sacrifices, all other priests, are an actual defiance of Christ. Usurpers and pretenders as another Christ. But the Scriptures had promised about Jesus that not a bone in Him would be broken 
And one day they would look upon Him whom they had pierced and they would mourn for Him. That will happen after their reinstituted animal sacrifices have been taken away once again, this time by Antichrist in the terrible tribulation, and they face doom, complete annihilation. By the Holy Ghost they will remember Messiah and what they did to Him and how stubborn they all were for thousands of years scheming and plotting to restore the animal sacrifices which now once again had proved to be worthless to save them. Christ is their only hope to save them. When they mourn for Him, even though they had pierced Him so long ago, He will come and save them. How merciful has God been to open our eyes to see these truths, to tear us away from all other hope but Jesus. There can be no comfort from God's oath to Christ to make Him a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so long as we cling to worthless sacrifices and to false priests. Now we come to the necessary warnings which the writer of Hebrews issues to those who will not listen to the argument that he has laid down about Christ's sacrifice. And the warning is that it is Christ's sacrifice and Christ alone or wrath and judgment. Those are the two options that the Jewish believers face and that really the whole world faces. Hebrews 10 at verse 19 we read, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. The writer of Hebrews has given the arguments for the sacrifice of Christ, perfecting those whom God wills to give to Jesus and all who come to Him and His perfect high priestly work for us and how we now can come into the holiest place because the blood has justified and cleansed us. But then here's the exhortation. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Here is the forsaking of Christ's people by which the writer of Hebrews is describing going back to Judaism, no longer gathering with the saints assembled to celebrate the Lord's table and to build each other in strength and courage and good works and faith, but rather to walk away from Christianity and go back to the Judaism that they had grown up in and which they were so comfortable with. This is the exhortation primarily in this text of forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. The walking away. Now, of course, people walk away from assembling with believers for other reasons as well. And this text stands as a rebuke to them also because if you trust in the Lord Jesus and Him alone, 
you'll naturally want to celebrate the sacrifice He made around the Lord's table and you'll naturally want to be with His people, fellow saints, fellow believers. And leaving off the attendance of church services is a sign of possible walking away from the faith of Jesus Christ. And so it is to be warned against. But then in verse 26, the warning gets much sharper. For if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this passage is not speaking of falling into sin generally because the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. John the Apostle wrote in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is speaking, continuingly speaking, of the same particular sin of apostatizing from the Lord Jesus and from His sacrifice. That monstrous walking away wherein one abandons Christ's sacrifice and promises, denies the faith, and in the case of the Jewish audience, goes back to the temple and animal sacrifices. And this warning is you cannot go back because there is still no sacrifice other than Jesus, than what Jesus has already done. It may appear at that time there were other sacrifices, but they're counted as no sacrifice from the writer of Hebrews' point of view, from Christ's point of view. There are no other sacrifices for sin. You've walked away from the only sacrifice if you've turned your back on the Lord Jesus. And don't kid yourself that going back to the animal sacrifices of the temple will get you anywhere. There is no more sacrifice for sin. You have abandoned the sacrifice that takes away sin and perfects those who trust in it. You've abandoned that, and for that sin alone, there can be no other sacrifice for sin, much less for all your other sins that you think can be washed away by the blood of animal sacrifices. There is still no other sacrifice whether you stay with Jesus or not. No matter what you think, no matter how you hope, the writer of Hebrews is clearly demonstrated here. There is no other offering for sin. If you deny Christ and His sacrifice, all you have to look forward to is fiery wrath and judgment. Verse 29, Of how much sorer judgment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace. Do you remember what Jesus described his 
sacrifice on Calvary's tree as the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. If you walk away from Christ's sacrifice, it's as if you're saying the blood of Jesus doesn't cleanse anybody. It doesn't bring about the forgiveness of our sin. He was just talking nonsense at the Lord's table. We don't believe any of that stuff anymore. We're going back to some real animal sacrifices because we feel like they can do better than what Christ has done. You see what a monstrous sin such a turning away would be. And that is the monstrous sin which the writer is warning the readers against. The worst thing is that you knew the truth and now you deny it and go back to what cannot save you even though it has been plainly proved that it cannot save you. Now after that comes an appeal to renew faith of previous times. Renew the faith of previous times. Remember, this is being written to people who are thinking about going away from Christ, going back to their old religion. And the writer is doing everything he can to convince them of the doom and the destruction which such a move will bring about. Verse 32, But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used, For ye had compassion on me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now notice here that he is reminding them of their former faith and that it was held in the face of persecution against themselves and against him as their apostle. The reward is for now invisible and yet is received by the eye of faith. That's the key here. It appears to wicked men outside the camp that all they're getting for this trust in the Lord Jesus is just trouble, persecution, alienation, isolation, rejection. But the writer is going to begin now an emphasis on the fact that we receive the promise of Christ, of salvation. We receive salvation now, but we can't see it, can we? It's a status before God that has made us perfect. We can't see it now, but we receive it by the eye of faith. And he says here, the just shall live by faith. That means they don't live according to their works, according to rituals, according to the ways of man which man has concocted to supposedly please God and get in on his good side. Rather, the just live by the faith in Jesus Christ, in his promises, in all that the writer of Hebrews has carefully taught them up to this point. And denying the faith leads to judgment. 
But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. So he is exhorting these people to believe, to continue to believe on Jesus to the saving of their soul. And one day soon, they will see the truth. And the same theme is brought in First Peter chapter 1. Whom having not seen ye love, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving by faith the salvation of your soul. And of course, it's through the blood of the Lamb Peter makes plain a few verses later. Now Hebrews then gives its Jewish believers examples of Old Testament saints who trusted in God's promises and is careful to point out that almost none of them received the promise that they had trusted in in their life, but received it by faith to be delivered at the last day by the God who keeps His promises mostly for things they never saw fulfilled but believed that God would bring them to pass one day. And that, of course, is the great hall of faith which one finds in Hebrews chapter 11 where the writer recites historical examples of beloved personages of Jewish history and all the ways in which they believed God in the face of trouble, in the face of heartache, in the face of deprival, and even in the face of horrible death, they believed the promises of God. And they're held out to be an example of why we must continue to believe in the promises of Jesus, in the work of Christ as our high priest, in the sacrifice that He made. And these are encouragements to trust in the promises of Jesus by the sacrifice of Jesus and to continue on with Christ and His saints to the end. The only example we'll deal with is the example of Abel. And in Hebrews 11 at verse 4, we read, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. You see that Abel obeyed the commandment that God must have given to his family that he required an offering of a bloody sacrifice. And this is, of course, to picture, to portend the sacrifice which God would one day bring through His Son, the Lord Jesus, that would take away sin. And all through the Old Testament, the sacrificial system points to Jesus being its finisher and concluder. And as Hebrews has proved, its replacement that all those sacrifices no longer serve a purpose because the real sacrifice, the Lord Jesus for sinners slain, has now come. And so Abel was trusting in God's promise that he would take count of this animal sacrifice, that it was necessary at that moment in that time for the pleasing of God. It's the first sacrifice commanded by God it was done in faith by Abel that God would be propitiated for Abel's sins. But the writer picks up his theme again in chapter 12. Now we notice that when we read Genesis chapter 4, just an aside, that it said that God did not have respect unto Cain's sacrifice, which was of the fruit of the ground. He's a farmer 
And Cain was very angry. Cain was very angry. And of course, we know the sad tale. Before it was over with, Cain murdered his brother. The first murder. And the tragedy of it was that poor Eve had thought that Cain might be the promised seed of the woman who would stamp out the evil of what she and Abel had done. And instead, he descends to the most depraved crimes of murdering his own brother, a fratricide, snuffing out her hope there. But the Lord gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, to continue on the line of the Lord's people. So Abel was justified by God and his faith is commended early in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says there that by that sacrifice, Abel being dead yet speaks. Abel being dead yet speaks. And then in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews provides a final contrast between the old covenant law and wrath and judgment and the blessed new covenant reality. The old covenant reality is seen in Hebrews 12 at verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount which might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, the voice of words which voiced they that heard, entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. This is the writer of Hebrews reminding his Jewish believer readers of the way in which the Old Covenant was established. He's talking about Mount Sinai and the fire and the thunder and the trumpets that were painfully loud and how terrified the people were by the presence of God and His almighty power. And they insisted that Moses only speak to God for them so that they might not be so affrighted anymore by the demonstrated wrath of God and His overwhelming power. So this is the picture, you see, of the Old Covenant. It's a covenant of works, salvation, of do this and live, disobey this and die. You can imagine the death, the judgment, the wrath will be furious because of the way in which God presented Himself to the people at the institution of the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go to this place. Especially don't go back to this place. This is not a place of safety. This is not a place of salvation or forgiveness. Haven't you people learned that through all your years? You could never come to salvation and safety by the law and by the old covenant. Why? Because none of you could keep it. You could never keep it. Surely you're through with that experiment by now of trying to keep the law and entering into safety and salvation and rest. This is the essence of the old covenant as it applies to poor lost people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, this is the essence of the trouble that people who want to follow after the animal sacrifices are putting themselves to. But then there's the reality of the new covenant, which we have entered into now. Notice the present tense of the writer's description of the new covenant. 
but ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now this comports well with how Paul described the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, at the end of Galatians chapter 4. You remember he tells the allegory of those who are the children of works, which was Ishmael, versus that who was the son of promise, Isaac, and how all of those who trust in works for their salvation are like the offspring of Ishmael, while those who follow after Christ and trust the sacrifice of Jesus and don't add works to it, believe the gospel, they are like the son Isaac, and they are entered into the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is become like Sodom and Gomorrah, the Scriptures have told us over and over again. The new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the glorious Zion, is the place of Christ's rule and reign. It is a symbol of His kingdom, which one day we will see with our own eyes. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this is where we've come through Jesus Christ to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now all these people, you see, the writer is pointing out to them that you claim you want to go back to Israel, you want to go back to Jerusalem, you want to go see the temple, all of those things. But what we've got in Christ, under His high priestly rule, under His rule as the King of righteousness, the King of peace, we've already come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we are in Christ Jesus. We're there now. And of course, it would soon be that it wouldn't be possible for them to go to the city of Jerusalem and to Mount Zion anymore when the Romans totally obliterated the whole thing and drove off all the inhabitants. The writer here is preparing the Lord's people for the reality that we're at Mount Zion now. We're in the city of the living God. We're in the heavenly Jerusalem. Christ's blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel's sacrifices. Look at what it says. We've come to an innumerable company of angels. Come to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The people who follow after the Lord Jesus and trust in His sacrifice and rely upon Him to be their high priest, they have come already into spiritual Zion, into the new Jerusalem, into the places of heaven, into heavenly places, as he said, we should enter boldly into the holy place where Christ dwells and where Christ ministers as our high priest. So we are come to where there is an assembly of and congregation of the Lord Jesus whose names are written in heaven. And we come before God, the judge of all. And remember, they came before God under the old covenant, Mount Sinai, but it was not a blessed sight, was it? But the writer of Hebrews is here describing a glorious sight that we have entered into now, we who've trusted in Jesus. We have come to God, the judge of all, through Jesus Christ. 
and to the spirits of just men made perfect. We've come into an assembly of people who've been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus. We're not trying to become perfected. We're not working to become perfected. Christ has already perfected us before God. That's why we can come into His presence. So you see the writer here is contrasting what they have in Christ versus what they would have without Christ and proving that what we have in Christ even now is better than anything they can go back to. They can go back to wrath and judgment and terror, but not in the presence of Christ. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling which speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, people get confused about this text. They think that it's speaking of Abel's shed blood that cried out to God from the ground, but that's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about the blood of Abel's sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God, wasn't it? But it was only because Abel presented it in faith of God's promise to forgive his sin. And it was only because it pointed to that blood of the new covenant which the Lord Jesus would shed for the saving of His people. One of the things to note about Abel and Cain and Cain's angriness at his offering not having respect of God and his countenance falling, as we read in Genesis 4 at verse 5, the sacrifice that men admire and accredit versus what God delights in. This is a theme, of course, in the book of Hebrews, but it's drawn out in the comparison between Christ's blood of the new covenant and Abel's sacrifice, and then Abel's sacrifice compared to Cain's offering, you see. Cain thought that his offering was the best one of the fruit of the ground of his labor as a farmer. But God didn't delight in that. God only delighted in the bloody sacrifice that Abel gave. But God delighted in that sacrifice only because it pointed to the bloody sacrifice which the Lord Jesus would give that would overthrow all the previous sacrifices, whether delighted in by God or delighted in by man. Even as Cain was angry that his valuable sacrifice was not accepted by God, so too the Jews of Hebrews' day grew angry that their animal sacrifices were no longer delighted in by God also. But the sacrifice of Jesus is a sweet savor to God and speaks better things even than the sacrifice of Abel. Abel's sacrifice was given in faith, offered up in faith, and God accredited him as righteous for his faith. Not for the sacrifice, but for what it pointed to, the Lord Jesus. And now the sacrifice of Jesus speaks better things. The blood of sprinkling of Jesus Christ speaks better things. It offers true salvation for all who lay hold on that sacrifice. It accomplishes better things than the blood of the sacrifice that Abel gave. As faithful as it was, as commendable as it was, as an example of the primitive faith of the Lord's people as it was, nevertheless, what came at the end 
the blood of the Lord Jesus, speaks better things than the blood of Abel's sacrifice could ever say. And then there is that final warning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spoke on earth, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. God has spoken to us by His Son. You remember those are some of the first words of the book of Hebrews. And the Lord Jesus has instructed us that God does not delight in animal sacrifices. This concludes the matter. Christ has proclaimed His sacrifice alone forgives sin, and those that trust in Him alone enter into His kingdom which cannot be moved. And you see the echo back to the loud voice of speaking of God from the top of Mount Sinai. And what he's saying is that the loud voice of what God and His dear Son, the Lord Jesus, who is God the second person, the loud voice that they have spoken will shake and signify the removing of all the things that are shaken as of things that were made, that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. And this is including, of course, the shaking and the removing of the animal sacrifices. But it goes further than that. It extends to the judgment which shall fall. And therefore, even as the Jewish people were fearful at the voice from the top of the Mount Sinai, so too we must be in godly fear of what Jesus has proclaimed about the offerings and about salvation and about the only way for the perfection of His people who trust in Him. And if we want to play games with what Jesus said and walk away from it and tempt Him and try Him with false sacrifices and with works being added to the sacrifice that He made, then we too might as well have gone back to Mount Sinai and endured the wrath that God displayed there against His people. There is, of course, a beautiful picture of the glorious rescue of Christ, of His people, that could never, never have been seen apart from the resurrection of the body of poor Lazarus. Jesus gave this example, a foretaste of the glory of His kingdom when He raised up Lazarus from the dead. Now, we've preached on that many terms, and there are many things that we could say. And as I read it this morning, I thought, maybe I should just preach on this instead. But just to make this one point, there is that discourse that Jesus has with Martha when He comes to Bethany. Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, went and met Him. Mary sat still in the house. 
Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, He will give it thee. Notice that she she trusted Jesus. She believed in Him, but she still didn't understand wherein sat the power of the resurrection. Christ didn't need to ask permission from His Father. You remember in John chapter 5, He had already preached that the Father had given Him power to raise up whoever He would. She just didn't grasp that, you see. She was thinking of Jesus more like a prophet than like the Son of God, than like Messiah, than like the one who came possessed with the power to forgive sin and the power to raise from the dead. Jesus said unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And here's the key. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is the glorious promise of the new covenant through Jesus Christ. This is the glorious promise of the power of Christ to forgive sin and to raise men from the dead. You see, resurrection is a remitting of the temporal judgment for sin for all whom Christ has delivered by His dying in our place. If it weren't for the death of the Lord Jesus, He would have no legal right to grant everlasting life to anybody. Because there would be the promised judgment for sin. The soul that sinneth it shall die. So whosoever liveth and believeth in Me, now He says, shall never die. Believest thou this? And this is the power of that glorious kingdom which the writer of Hebrews describes as Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, the presence of the living God, the place of angels, the congregation of the Lord's people, just men made righteous, the sprinkling of Christ's blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is a glorious promise that Christ has made and obtained at Calvary by Him on behalf of His people. Our sins forgiven by the work of our great High Priest. Nothing under the Old Covenant could compare. And those who go back to the other sacrifices and other priests go to their doom. Lay hold of Jesus only. This is the preaching of the whole book of Hebrews. For He is worthy. For He is exalted. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus. His blood of the sprinkling washes us clean, justifies all who believe in Him. All the terrors of the law and God's wrath fell on Jesus as our great high priest and His sacrifice when no other sacrifice would do. And He is our resurrection and life. And in Christ, in the end, we shall never die. That is the promise. And surely the people that the writer of Hebrews was writing to should have taken pause at what they had received in Christ and what they would walk away from if they went back to the old priests and the old sacrifices. Reminded me of the words of Augustus Toplady's hymn that we sing occasionally. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy I sing nor fear with thy righteousness own my person and offering to bring. 
the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which His goodness began, the arm of His strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below or above, can make Him His purpose forego, or sever my soul from His love. My name from the palms of His hands eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy but not more secure are the glorified spirits in heaven. And we celebrate around this table the sacrifice Jesus made to take away our sin, to guarantee us eternal life, to put us at peace with God, take away the terror of the law and of wrath and of judgment. And we dare not go back against Christ. For anyone who goes back against Him, there is no hope left at all, but only judgment. But the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He gave us these symbols to describe, to remind us of His great work of redemption on our behalf at Calvary's tree. He gave us the bread that was broken as a reminder of His body. And let's give thanks for that bread as a reminder of the crucified body of Christ. O oh God our Father, we rejoice in Your dear Son and what He did. We give Him thanks for being made our Redeemer and Savior and going to all the trouble in His humanity to rescue poor lost men who were rebellious and sinful and alienated and thoughtless and faithless. And yet He died on Calvary's tree and His body was torn cruelly by the hands of His own creatures to be made an offering, a sacrifice that you would be well pleased with that you would treat as a sweet-smelling savor when all the other animal sacrifices no longer delight you in your glory and perfection and holiness. And we thank you that he left us this bread to remind us of the dying that he has accomplished for us. And help us not to ever turn back or go away from Jesus. Strengthen our faith and maintain us in his hand, we pray. And bless us as we partake of this feast. In Jesus' name, Amen. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my Father if He would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 43 in the black book. By faith I look where Christ is gone and see upon His Father's throne. 
a man with glory crowned. His brow is marred, and on his side whence flowed the cleansing crimson tide, the marks of love are found. Number 43. 